Could you be in a toxic relationship and not even see the signs? This is far more common than you think. Today on Tamar's Relationship Transformations, your host, author, and certified relationship coach, Tamar Neal, will expose the less talked about, but nonetheless, all important aspects of unhealthy and abusive relationships. You'll learn how to avoid being in one or how to get out of one. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the host or the show. Now, here's Tamar Neal. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Tomorrow's Relationship Transformations. Now, today, we have a live interview with Maggie Knipe. Maggie Knipe is a veteran of the publishing industry with a career spanning more than two decades in publicity and marketing. She has performed as a singer at such Manhattan clubs as the Lori Beachman Theater and the Metropolitan Room. Maggie graduated with degrees in English and theater from the College of William and Mary and received a Master of Fine Arts in Dance from Sarah Lawrence College. I could go on and on, but why should I when we have her here live? So would you please help me to give a warm welcome to the phenomenal Miss Maggie Knight. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Tamara. I'm calling you Tamara. Um, I hear you say Tamara. What's the best way to, what's the best name for you? That, you just said it just like that. Yep. That sounds Tamara. great. Mm-hmm. Great. Yes. Yes. Thanks Hi, everybody. For <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Maggie. You're oh. welcome. I'm very happy to be here. Okay. Maggie's going to take us back. She's going to take us back to a time back to the 1980s. Now, I know many of you I will start with telling the story. I wrote a book. The book is called, I think you all know this, now everyone will know, about my uh, wonderful marriage at one point. And so to take you back to the 1980s, I was a, um, an aspiring performer, uh, working and supporting myself um, as a waitress, a singing waitress in lower Manhattan at a place called the Waterfront Crab House at the Bowery and Second Streets, for those of you veteran Manhattanites. And mm-hmm. we would sing with sailor caps on and raprons that said, Make a cow happy, eat fish today. I was very proud to support myself, and I had a relationship at that time. I'm a, um, a, a Caucasian woman who happens to also be Jewish, and I had a boyfriend who was African-American and very successful and handsome. And we were very much in love, but at that time it was very difficult to, uh, what we thought, go on with that relationship, take it into marriage. Um, I, I talk a little about my dating. I had dates. I had some exciting encounters, but mostly I had this wonderful relationship. So when we broke up in 1980, the end of 1982, uh, I had just, by the way, gotten out of graduate school in dance. I was trying to be a dancer. I was always starving myself, as many women do, and men, I'm sure, but women do who dance. Um, And I was trying desperately to get into some major dance companies. I could not, I was not making it, and I was also auditioning a lot and um, sort of mourning my relationship being over while I was doing sort of what you call dinner theater and um, summer stock. And, And although I had a degree in English, I wasn't going where I wanted to go, at which point I was introduced at the age of just turning 28 with oh. to a um, 
uh, I had a blind date. And I went to a bar in Tribeca, again for you Manhattanites, uh, called the River Run on Franklin Street in Tribeca. No longer there, nor is the Waterfront Crab House, by the way. And I walked into the bar, and I write about this in my book. It's one of the, I think the most, if I may say so, one of the more riveting scenes of the book. When I walk in on a cold April night and in 1984, and my blind date, who was a financial reporter, at that time, and, and, and a new editor at the Wall Street Journal who's moved to New York from Los Angeles is at the bar waiting for me, and what I thought would be sort of a, a, a plastic pen holder guy, you know, very sort of, I'm sorry to use this, for those of you who are nerds out there, I have deep respect, <laughs> and many of you are attractive, but in this case, this was a very attractive, non-nerdy person with bright red hair and a fabulous build, and... Um, I saw him and he saw me, and I have to say it was one of those moments. Wow, so, so it was like a love at first sight moment there. I would say so. I mean, I can't, I obviously can't speak for John, who's been gone for 25 years, but I think mm-hmm. we both felt it at the same time, Tamara, and I also think that we were kindred spirits in many ways, and I had come from loving theater and, and literature, and this financial uh, Harvard Business School graduate, also a Brown University graduate, then Harvard Business School person, was so interesting and so eclectic in his tastes and so mm-hmm. culturally aware that we really pretty much closed the bar that night. Wow. And so, so that let me was ask my you, second I mean, let me just move along a little bit. How long after you met did he propose uh, to you? Because I understand you guys got married pretty quick. At that quick. time, that seemed like an impossibility. So that there you have the there you have the eighties up until the time I I we, we we went for about a little over a year we became engaged John and I we mm-hmm. had a fabulous wedding put together by the two of us at a loft on Twenty Seventh Street Patrick O'Neill's loft again I'm trying to bring in those people who love New York City as much as I do and remember right right and I'm loving it go ahead. And we had a, um, our, our wedding song was the recent hit by Paul Simon um, called Graceland. And when Graceland played, as we walked down our makeshift aisle in the loft, I felt like I was the luckiest girl ever to oh have this my, wonderful I know that husband. feeling. I know that feeling. Okay, so shortly after, so I guess you dated about a year, and then he A little over a year, yes. Okay, seems like I'm getting some static here. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if you're hearing it. Um, I have a little. There's a little bit of um, feedback, but I. If you can, you hear me? Yeah, I can hear. I can hear okay, you now. So I don't know where that's coming from, but I guess they'll fix it. Okay, with hindsight being 2020, looking back now, and we have about five minutes before we're going to take a break. With hindsight being 2020, looking back now. When you announced that you were, that you met this great guy and you were getting married, um, was there anything about him that troubled you to the point that you wanted to leave it out when you talk to other people? Because I noticed when when things trouble us, we we tend to leave that part about the person out. Mm-hmm. The only thing that bothered me in that way, I'm sorry. Did you want to? Are you? Did you? Is a question over? I wanted to. Yeah. The only thing that bothered me in that way about John was that he was really, really what I would call pathologically quiet. And I loved his reserve, and I loved his quiet intelligence, but it was, uh-huh. sometimes he, he, he omitted, seemed to be told me things uh, not, that were not completely um, informa- informative. 
I, I would, I just, there were things, I, it didn't keep me from introducing him, but I did question how quiet he was most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't seem to be something that would keep me from marrying him. Also, okay, I so when you say he was not... I'm pretty chatty, so we made a good pair. But that was the only thing about him that I thought. He, sometimes he was really so palpably quiet, you could, you know, to coin a phrase, hear a pin drop. Wow. Okay. So when you say he was quiet, you think that was just part of his personality. Now looking back, what do you think he was quiet for a reason? Well, I, Maybe think that he was, was... I think it was part of his personality, and I think it was part mm-hmm. of his own culture. He was a reserved, um, you know, from a culture, his own, I'm a very, I come from an ethnic, what we call it, there are, everybody's ethnic to some degree, but where I come from, Jewish people tend to be kind of, we talk, we can talk and gesture, and, and he was a, not, he was a lapsed, uh, I don't know, Presbyterian, so he, or he, he never, he, didn't, he was kind of agnostic, but he was from, his mother was from New England, and I think he had, I don't want to read, you know, regionally type anybody, but he had that sort of New England reserve, so I, I think that was part of who he was. So to that end, I really didn't question it. I don't think he didn't necessarily tell me things. Later on, as I reflected at, upon what happened to us, I wondered if he, you know, was, was, was sort of strategic in that sort of reserve. Hmm. But not until years later. Right. Okay, so you meet this, uh, you meet a star editor at the yes. Wall Street Journal. And you're dating him, and then he soon proposes. Am I correct? Yes. Like a year later. It took like an yes. engage maybe a year. You're 28 yes. years old, just trying to catch everything up. You're 28 yes. I, years old. When I got old. married, I was just turning 30 when I got married. Oh, okay, just turning 30. Well, that's, that's a pretty good age there. So right. it seems like you're floating on a cloud right now. Right, what's, exactly. What's going on with your career now that you're at you're engaged. Well, you're married at that point. Once you so I okay. Whoa. So one of the things when I met John, I had been waitressing and I had been auditioning and working in the theater every gig I could get. And John, this is a time, as I recall it, of women coming into their own more and more. Many of my friends were then going to business school, law school. I'm talking about my women friends. And John didn't want to marry someone who he had to quote unquote support. Or, you know, who didn't have a career. He told me as much. On the other hand, he wanted a woman who was home with children because his mother had been home with him. And he wanted, he didn't want, he he ideally wanted to have a mother home with children. But before we became engaged, I went and got a job at a frozen dessert company. I was a marketing person. And then I got a job two more, I got I moved very quickly, and I got another job. I had been working, by the way, in the summers off from graduate school, and in college I'd been working at a PR company. I'd done summer work, so I knew that business. So I went to a PR firm after that, and then another big PR firm, and that's what I was doing up until I almost had our first child, a daughter. So I was a PR person. I was handling several clients. I was flying all over the place on media tours, and then it was time for me to leave there when it was time to have the first child. And then, essentially, I was not to go back to work after that. Okay. However, okay. I, however I did. Uh, just to, to, to complete the story, I did. After having my first child, we were living then together in Hoboken, New Jersey, and he was John had a job, and I was either choreographing local musicals. I also wrote a, a book, a, part of a, 
a, a youth, a juvenile book series on, my book was on self-discipline. They were sort of values for young people. And I did some editing. And so I had many pursuits to try to contribute to our budget. John was a journalist, and we had high hopes and dreams. And so it was important to have some more money coming in. But I, he was, he was, the, he was the, the core breadwinner of our couplehood. Oh, okay. Okay. We are going to take a deep breath and a minute for a commercial break. And when we return, Maggie Knight will continue to enlighten us on how, after a fairy tale courtship in the 1980s, her young marriage to a perfect husband shattered. Okay, we'll be right back now. Don't y'all go nowhere. In the meantime, just in the meantime, we have a second. Um, you can go in, I guess, on Amazon and get that book. Now and everyone will know. Maybe reading it by the time we get back. See you in a minute. <laughs> this is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. For many years, while employed as a Baltimore County 911 operator, Tamar Neal found herself as the only help available for the caller on the other end of the line. While people experienced life-changing emergencies until the first responders arrived, she received a national diploma in emergency medical dispatch and became a certified relationship expert and multi-award winning author. Her articles have appeared in respected magazines and newspapers, and she's been interviewed by national and local media outlets. Visit TamarNeal.com to purchase her books, find out where she is appearing next, and take advantage of a valuable free gift. Tamar is also available for public speaking and life coaching. You can also receive signed copies of Tamar's books that are available only at the website. Visit T-A-M-A-R-A-Neal.com for more information or call directly at 888-503-1575. Tamar Neal's books are also available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most bookstores. That's TamarNeal.com or call 888-503-1575. Build a better business, achieve that goal, make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are listening to Tomorrow's Relationship Transformations. To reach Tamar Neal or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to relationships at tamarneal.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A-Neal.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back. If you are just joining us, we are talking to Maggie Knipe, the author of Noun Everyone Will Know. Uh, it's a story about how, after a fairy tale courtship in the 1980s, well, what she was in the middle of, of telling us about was how, after this fairy tale courtship in the 1980s, um, her young marriage to a perfect husband uh, began, well, actually shattered. Uh, Maggie, yes. you had a you had a fairy tale courtship in the 1980s. I'm just trying to catch everybody, everyone up. If you're just joining us, and quickly married, what was life like being married to a star editor at the Wall Street Journal? 
I think, um, okay, I think it was like everything I had ever dreamed, meaning that I can have great memories, some of which are in the book, but not every memory can be in a book. I guess maybe in, maybe they can be in a book that's 650 page long, pages long, but mine is, a, I think, considered a readable 166 or 7 pages. Basically, I have these memories of like being pregnant with my first child and being unusually large. <laughs> Because she was a very big baby. And walking on an icy street, she was born in January, and there was a, a, a big, big restaurant called America, which was, again, I'm, I, I would love to hear from people who would tell me, I was there, I knew these places in the <laughs> 80s and in the early 90s um, in New York City. And it was, a, it was like a, a, a football field size restaurant on 18th Street in Chelsea. And John, somebody on John's staff was leaving, and I remember walking into this group of really bright, exciting, hip journalists, all about 15 of them, John's group, sitting at a big table and feeling like I was really just the luckiest person. I had married this really smart, interesting, love, very sexy for me, actually, um, mm. just electric and talented person, and they were all sort of working for him, and I was going in, and I was having his child, and that's a, an incredible memory. Otherwise, in Hoboken at that time, in our town on our street, there were many celebrities. For example, this was life in Hoboken, then you've asked, as you've asked. Tony Goldwyn, who's on Scandal, President Fitz, he was just a young movie star starring in Ghost. His wife, Jane Muskie, was a set designer of that movie. The movie director, John Sayles, was down the street. The people who had written the musical Hair lived up the street. Anna wow. Anna who was writing Life in the 30s, and I just saw her speak about her own book. She was a neighbor. And it was, it was a, because it was a, a, just a town across the Hudson River from, as many people know, from Manhattan, a lot of creatives lived there. So we had a, so it was almost like what people think of and know of as Brooklyn today. Brooklyn being the place, and now also, to some say, Queens, where young, very creative and hip people are congregating. That was our feeling about Hoboken. That was Hoboken to me in those years. Mm-hmm. And so life was just like, we, I didn't work anymore. I did freelance projects. And a, a group of, of us women would go to the Y every day and drop our kids off. And I write a lot about this because we all had these babies. We'd drop off at the local Y child care the YMCA had a child care area. Now, the YMCA is not even there anymore, so I feel like I'm really dating myself. But anybody who lived in Hoboken in those years would remember the Y at 14th and Washington Streets. And we began, I was taking up running at that time, and so we had a very steady group of about six, five to six on any given days, mothers who ran every day about five miles through the streets of Hoboken along the Hudson River on what we call, what's now called Frank Sinatra Drive because he was born there. And we had a glorious time running and talking about everything, our lives, our husbands, our children, what we had done before, what we want to do in our lives, and, and, and eat local gossip. And these people, uh. two of these, one of these people was a, was a local Episcopalian minister. And we just had, I write it in the book that this was sort of my church. Now, I had grown up going to synagogues, but any way you, anything that's spiritually a haven for you, whether it's a living, breathing haven or a place, that's what this posse of running moms was to me. And so uh. then after we ran, we, 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 picked up our kids from childcare, and we'd go and we'd go to McDonald's where they had a playground in the McDonald's. I don't even know if McDonald's still have these jungle gym type things, but or we'd just take walks in the park. Or we, and then our husbands would come home for the most part, and we would make them the usual sort of chicken dish. We didn't have the Internet, so we would use the um, 
silver palette cookbook, the first one, I remember that um, cookbook or the joy of cooking we'd inherited from some of our mothers and, and we would make chicken, chicken and more chicken. And, huh. and we, and then on Friday nights or Saturday nights when the, when our husbands would come home, we'd have barbecues and we were just all feeling, I think, fairly content about our lives. Some women worked at that time and would commute and take the path train and or the bus to their jobs. But most of us at that time in my group had had finished our day jobs, our desk jobs, and were were, were reverting to motherhood. So, mm-hmm. um, and there was a local pool also in Secaucus, New Jersey. And we, as our kids got a little older, we would take them over there to learn how to swim. This, I'm talking about okay. summers mostly. Winters, we just continued to run and bundle up and run. And that, and also back to John, because John had started a new section in the journal, which is now a well-established section called the Media and Marketing Section. When he started it. His reporters covered movies, and so we would go to what the, the top of the Gulf, what was then the gu- top of the Gulf and Western Building, about once a month at Columbus Circle, and we would screen movies, and we would get good bourbon when we they give it, it had a full bar, and I thought, what is better than this? Seeing mm. movies on recliners, you know, when they're first out, meeting really interesting people who work at a, one of the greatest newspapers and having my own fulfilling social life and my own experience of motherhood. To me, that's what life was like. 30-something, and I write about this, was on TV. 30-something was was what I, I, I've watched Parenthood recently, and I really liked that show, which is now off the air on NBC. But uh-huh. 30-something was an ABC show, if people remember, and I think it was Thursday nights, and we... Lived and breathed off these people. Hope was one of the characters, and we just felt like we were in the sweet spot of life. That's what it was like. Back wow! Oh, and you do such a good, great job with the description of it because you put me right there. I almost forgot I was hosting a show. I'm just sitting here and I'm left the show Hope, for me. Hope and Elliot. <laughs> Hope and Elliot. Elliot had red hair. Like Elliot, I believe, was the redheaded character. Sorry to interrupt you, but it just came back. Elliot, I think, was a character who had red hair just like John. So we could really okay. identify Tamara with all these people. Okay, so how many kids do you have now? You just have the one, or do you one have child. two? You just have one. Okay, so when does the second baby come along? Okay, so then I had one baby, and then the second, and then I said to John, you know, I, at the time I had my, my first child at 32, and I said, John, let's, we were going to have more kids, and John was thinking already about maybe he would go run a bureau, one of the bureaus at the journal. Um, my parents lived in Philadelphia, and there was a Philadelphia journal, a bureau opening up, and he seemed to want to get a suburban house. We were moving ahead to that, what you might call for some people that next phase. And uh-huh. I got pregnant very fast with, with uh, both of my children. And so pretty soon, when my, um, my daughter was about a year and a half, I got pregnant with another baby. And um, then I write in the book um, that... Things began to change a little bit. Um, John seemed very stressed out. Starting this new section uh, was really a lot. It, you know, launching it, put him at the right. office late at night, later than usual. He was pretty good about coming home despite his career on time. He was becoming, had sort of stress-related little illnesses. He had skin condition psoriasis. He'd go to a doctor and the doctor would say, oh, it's stress, and he'd try to give him something for it. Or he... He seemed anxiety-ridden to the point that he had to start to see a psychiatrist. Or one night he had, he had a bad, bad cough, and he was really painful, and he said, I really think I need to go to the hospital. And I got someone to watch our daughter, and we went to St. Vincent's Hospital in Greenwich Village because it was the best hospital that was close by. 
By the way, that's no longer there either. I think it's a condominium. I don't really know what it is. But not, I'm, mm, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to start talking about covered wagons in a minute if we keep going. But anyway, uh, that was actually a, that was a very big hospital, um, very busy hospital at that time. And the doctor, they went to the emergency room and they diagnosed something called pleurisy, which was a lung infection. Gave him a medication. And so all were the series of the months leading up to the birth of our second child, uh, John really wasn't feeling well. And, mm. and then... Um, I had our child pretty much on time, and he was one of the biggest babies the hospital had ever seen. He was over 10 This is the second big baby, Maggie? Second big baby. Two big babies. (laughs) The second baby was bigger than the first. Oh, my goodness. I had my children at Mount Sinai Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and the first time I was in labor, um, it was I got to the hospital, my water broke. And this is for everybody out there who, I mean, everybody's got some piece of this story, I think. You know, how you feel when you're, you've got to go to the hospital when you have a baby. And so it was, we were full of anticipation. I was, of course, writhing with contractions. And John was wonderful. He was there. He was coaching me. We had done Lamaze. He was as amazing as I thought he, I, I knew him to be through our whole relationship, and as a father to our first child, he was impeccable, Um, Mm. very attentive, very much in love with our child. Nothing could have marred the perfection that I considered my life. The second time I went to the, to the hospital with uh, John, he, he, see, he just, we sort of rushed there. Um, it was a little, we, we waited a while. The doctor thought we waited a little too long. I wasn't sure if the, how the contractions were coming. It was a little stressful. We got there. The, the doctor said to me, boy, you should have come earlier. We're ready to go. At which point John said to me, I think I'm going to go out and get, have a hamburger. And I, I said, what? You know, I, here I'm in labor, about to have our second child, and he was going to go out and get something to eat. And the doctor looked at me a little funny, like, what's going on? Well, he went out. Um, there was a restaurant nearby. I was in the middle of something. I, was, I couldn't be worried about what he was doing. I was pushing right. the baby, frankly. <laughs> and so he did come back in time for our son to be born. Beautiful, healthy, very large child. And then when we got home from the hospital, like the next day, went home, and he really kind of crashed at that point. He just was just completely exhausted. That sort of sympathetic pregnancy that sometimes fathers experience, this was that in spades. It was very Um. kind of confounding. And um, we, in fact, went down to see my folks in Philadelphia with the new baby and our other child, and and John, John smoked merits. He smoked, he was, he was, he had become sort of a chain smoker in the years that I knew him. Remember people back then, just to be fair to him, people back then smoked, um, uh, you know, they smoked in the office. The people didn't have right, and they, they smoked yeah. in the office, they smoked in the house, they smoked around the children, That's they smoked right. in the car, smoked. nobody Everybody. knew anything about right, secondhand right. smoke. You didn't go outside to smoke. Right, and so I think okay. that I should mention, right, so I think that, um, so he was sitting outside smoking, kind of staring into space, and I think my dad, who, who becomes very heroic in the book, um, I, I, and sometimes I just want to say, people read this book and they fall in love with my father so much, I realize the book is kind of an elegy to him, he's been gone for a couple of years, but... Now, hold, um, John, hold that thought, hold that thought, Maggie, I want you to hold the thought about your dad, when your dad walks up when he's outside smoking, because we have about 30 seconds before for the break and I don't want okay. you to have to to rush it but if you're just joining us we are talking to Maggie Knight when we come back she's going to finish off talking about she's um, actually she's the author of Now Everyone Will Know and um, when we come back she's going to tell us about after how her <laughs> tell us about her finish telling us about this fairy tale like courtship or marriage 
to the perfect husband, how it shattered and um, put her on a journey of self-discovery. We'll be right back. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For many years, while employed as a Baltimore County 911 operator, Tamar Neal found herself as the only help available for the caller on the other end of the line. While people experienced life-changing emergencies until the first responders arrived, she received a national diploma in emergency medical dispatch and became a certified relationship expert and multi-award winning author. Her articles have appeared in respected magazines and newspapers, and she's been interviewed by national and local media outlets. Visit TamarNeal.com to purchase her books, find out where she is appearing next, and take advantage of a valuable free gift. Tamar is also available for public speaking and life coaching. You can also receive signed copies of Tamar's books that are available only at the website. Visit T-A-M-A-R-A-Neal.com for more information or call directly at 888-503-1575. Tamar Neal's books are also available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most bookstores. That's TamarNeal.com or call 888-503-1575. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Tamar's Relationship Transformations. To reach Tamar Neal or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to relationships at tamarneal.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A-Neal.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back, everyone. If you are just joining us, we are talking to Maggie Knight about how when her marriage shattered, it put her on a journey of self-discovery. Um... She is actually the author of the book, Now Everyone Will Know. So, with that being said, Maggie, take us back to uh, the conversation that your dad was having with your husband, John, correct? Okay. So, um, basically, I my second child had been born. John was more and more exhausted and depleted. From and Energy was depleted and... He just didn't seem well. It seemed like huge malaise and depression, which was being diagnosed by the many doctors, depression, stress. And we had visited my folks, as I said, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and John was sitting on the front stone steps of the house, and he was chain-smoking, and my dad knew John to be a smoker, but my dad said, looked at him and he said, what's wrong with him? And I got a chill. I thought... What do you mean what's wrong with him? I said, I said, I write about this in the book. What, he has the biggest job. He's under so much stress. We just had a baby. That's what's wrong with him. He's just had it. He's so tired. So anyway, we went back, um, and John was about to turn 36 on July 10th of, of 1990, and I thought this was a perfect opportunity to take him out for a nice meal. I got a babysitter, and we were going to go. Now, I want to say at this point that something I didn't mention that was happening in New York City and also in other big cities in America around these years was that AIDS was surfacing. So I'm leading everyone into what the story ultimately turns into, I think, but I think it's about time 
because I want to, that will then sort of support what I'm about to tell everyone. Basically, as a person in the, in the arts and also as a waitress, I had seen in my midst many young men get sick, and it was pretty dramatic. They would come in with colds to work or to rehearsal or to shows, and then another, another month they would be, have lost, have dropped a lot of weight. And they also were, showed some sores, and they were starting to limp. And I thought, um, you know, we, didn't, we knew what it was. We knew a little bit about it. But we also knew that it, it to be what they call the gay plague at that time. This was right. in the 80s. Into, uh-huh. into the, into, then into my marriage, I started to know some people who knew people who died of AIDS. Now, at the same time, in culture, um, there was a movie called Longtime Companion that came out. And John and I had gone to see that, and it was, um, it was very moving. I, think, I also think we had ice cream afterwards. I don't think we thought it was at all a risk to us, that disease. And uh-huh. um, we also, I write in the book, had gone to see a very good friend of mine, a very talented young guy, a singer, a, what we call a triple threat, a singer, dancer, and actor, um, who had come to see uh, my first child uh, to visit her in between his bus and truck shows all over the country. And then his boyfriend had called me some months later, and he didn't seem well at the time, but he said we had a slight cold, and my, this boyfriend of, his boyfriend had called me and said, this guy Chris was dying at St. Vincent's Hospital. By the way, the same hospital that I mentioned recently where John had gone for this test of his lungs. And I, and I told John we needed to go see Chris, and John went with me. And then when I went, we, we pulled up to Mount to St. Vincent's Hospital. John was very concerned with getting a parking place. This was very typical for him. I don't know. I, I just have to say thing about male car parkers. I think that they always have to find a parking place when things are dire. That's my experience. And that was uh-huh. John. And, may, and maybe some women, I don't want to be sexist, but, you know, people who could always have to find that parking place. Well, John right. was one of those people. And I said, he said, why don't you go in? He's really your friend. I'll stay here and I'll sit with the car. And I was okay with that, although I was pregnant with my, I was in my, at that time, in my seventh month of pregnancy with my son. And I thought, why am I going into the AIDS ward of this hospital? We didn't know very much about it. Uh And I went up and I saw Chris, and he was reduced to about 75 pounds, and he barely could speak. And Uh I realized that he was, how sick he was, and it was a terrible day for me. And I remember very it resonates for me how I felt seeing John after that. We all went out to dinner, and I thought, I'm so safe. I'm so, I'm so healthy and safe and, and lucky. And so uh-huh. then um, back to going back after to coming back from Philadelphia where my father was saying, what's wrong with John? I was wondering, I kept looking at John, what is wrong with him? You know, I, I don't know. He seems so depleted. We need a vacation. We need something. So finally this birthday came up, and we went to this restaurant, and at the table that night, a very hot July night in 1990, John came into the restaurant. He, I met him there from Hoboken. He worked in Lower Manhattan, and he looked. He was usually very crisp and very dapper, but he looked a little frayed. Of course, it was about 87 degrees outside, and we, we ordered steaks, and they delivered the steaks, and then he started to talk, and he wasn't making any sense. He wasn't calling things by their right words. He mm-hmm. picked up an ashtray and said, can we get more ketchup? And I... Wow blinked my eyes in disbelief. I, I said, what? What are you talking about? And he continued to stare at me and not, this is the, one of the greatest wordsmiths and editors I'd ever met, not able to use words. So I went to the phone. I didn't know what to do. And I was, I was had, I don't know, for the women out there who breastfed, I was breastfeeding so my shirt was just wet. I was so stressed out. You know, I remember just having um, letdown, leakage. 
And I, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have internet. We didn't have cell phones. So <laughs> I had to find change to go to the, pay, to the pay phone. And I called John's brother, who was in Connecticut, and I told him I, his brother wasn't making sense. And he said he was, he's a very calm person, somewhat helpful being calm. I was in trouble. He said, Let's, can you get him home? I'm supposed to see him tomorrow to... Um, take him for a birthday lunch. They both worked on Wall Street. One was on Wall Street, one was on the Wall Street Journal. So I thought, I don't know, but I, I, had, to, I had nothing else I could do. So I went back to the table, and I felt John's, John was sort of slumped there, and I felt him, he was burning up. And so I thought, oh, my God. At first I thought maybe it was a nervous breakdown, but I thought, oh, my God, you know, he must have, he's, he has some kind of flu. So I helped him outside. We got a cab quickly. We went uh, under, through the Lincoln Tunnel, or through the Holland Tunnel back to Hoboken, and um, we, or uh, I think it was Lincoln at that time. I forgot. I think I write Lincoln. I think he probably took the Lincoln for some reason. We were in the in Lower Manhattan, and because I lived by the Lincoln Tunnel, we lived in Uptown Hoboken, and we got him into bed. He was barely conscious. He was burning up, and I started that night. And I write about this in the book in great detail. My pacing that night. My uh, what's wrong with him? I, I found the number of his new psychiatrist, and I told I called him, and I called the service, and the psychiatrist called me back, and he said. I said, John's not making sense. And he said, oh, I'm supposed to see him tomorrow morning. So John had an appointment the next morning. See how he is in the morning. Uh, let's see if he can make it to me. Let me see him and let me assess him. And I went back and I, I kind of tried to climb on top of him to get him engaged. You know, he was always a, he was a very sexual person. He was very, very into having sex whenever and, and however. That's the kind of guy he was. And he was just almost dead to the world and burning up. Mm. I remember falling asleep next to him thinking, what is wrong with him? I thought about, again, I thought about nervous breakdown, but what nervous breakdown produces fever? When, after the psychiatrist, psychiatrist talked to me, I thought, well, it's probably okay. He's not alarmed. Maybe there is some kind of flu going around. I'm not going to get too freaked out. got up in the morning, and John was fine. His temperature was normal. I could feel his face. He was actually getting up for work and dressing. And I thought, mm. oh, God, that is just... It was a flu. This is amazing. I told him we had breakfast. I told him I had called a psychiatrist. I said, why did you call him? I'm fine. And so then I, I proceeded with my day. What a relief. Isn't it something how things happen in life so quickly? You know how it is. You can get sick one day. You have to hit your bed. The next day you feel you're so much better. Uh-huh. I thought, we're, we're, we're all good. And... I actually that day had lunch, a lunch schedule with a brother, friend, the brother of one of my former college roommates, and um, sent John off to work, got the babysitter again, went across the street for lunch. He told me about a disease called Epstein-Barr, which was pretty prevalent at the time. I thought, well, if anything, that's what John has. We're, we're just good. I'll go back. And then when I got back to the house, and I don't know if everybody remembers answering machines, but that's what we used back then to get messages, and it was flashing. There were like 15 messages on it. And the babysitter, a very wonderful, yeah, some kids downstairs really helped me out. And she said, boy, you have a lot of messages. You know, she'd taken the kids to the park, and she came back, and there were all these calls had come in. So I, I, I heard all these messages, and I write about this. Each one, a doctor, call me. The doctor's calling two, three times. And so finally I got the one doctor back, and I, was, I was, remember just sweating and let down of my breasts and my children holding one child slipping out of my hands. It was a very hot summer day. And the doctor said, um, you know, we think your husband, where this is, you know, he, what had happened was he'd gone to a psychiatrist and he was not really speaking that correctly. He'd written the wrong amount on the check. Now, the psychiatrist had called me and told me, I said, I write the wrong number amount on the check, on checks all the time. You know, how many checks have you ripped up, you know, when you've written the wrong amount? But, but John was doing some significant, showing some significant signs of lapse. 
so he had sent him for a brain scan, the psychiatrist at, the, at, at Mount Sinai Hospital, and that was the doctor I was talking to. And the doctor said, we, we've, and, and then my, my husband's brother had gotten him up there to the hospital. And he said, the doctor said, there are lesions on John's brain. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, it could be lymphoma. We're gonna, it's, we think it's a form of cancer. And I heard myself say, and a lot of people can't believe that I had not thought of this before, but I, uh, I will tell you the God's honest truth that it, I had never thought of it. I heard myself say, could he have AIDS? Mm. And, the, and I really had not even, I don't know whether it's denial. I don't know whether I wouldn't let myself think it. I don't, I don't know whether I would, could equate AIDS with my husband when there were all these gay men getting it. And he said, and the doctor said, why do you ask that? And I said, and I think he, he thought I would say, well, he's been living a double life or he's been hanging out in bars in the West Village. And I said, I heard myself say, because everything is wrong with him. And I re- reflected that moment back to the last months when I'd been pregnant. All, everything wrong, the lung disease, the skin condition, mm. the fevers, the depression. He had started to limp a little bit. And, and then it was like, uh, uh, autopilot. They called me the next morning and told me to come in for an AIDS test. They had tested him. They were pretty sure it was it. I had oh to go my. in by myself. I write about this. I think it's a very mm. harrowing account of being a young mother trying to get coverage for her children, going into a Park Avenue doctor's office and holding out her arm for an AIDS test during a time when they had seen very oh few women there. Oh, my goodness. And thinking that if I were to be a positive to test for AIDS, we, my children and I would have no life. We would have, if we all had AIDS in that time, we would not live very long. Right. And they didn't live I, long then. I'm sorry, say that again, Tamara. I said they really didn't live long then. Once you, once you received that diagnosis, then you didn't live long. Well, in fact... They didn't have what they people, have now. Well, there, are still, there was no, in other words, there was a drug called AZT, but there were not the life-sustaining um, cocktails and drugs that keep people alive almost to a full lifespan now, which are really um, just incredible. I mean, there's such a great survival right now for people with AIDS. But then all you heard about, all you read about, you read obituaries, you know, his longtime companion, that was what that, the title of that movie came from. Um, you know, celebrities were starting to, to pass away, and it was learned that it was AIDS. Rock Hudson was one. Freddie Mercury uh-huh. was another. We had celebrities starting to die from AIDS. And you didn't, you didn't equate, when you heard AIDS, you equated AIDS with illness and death. And right. So now, hold that, I, hold that thought right there, Maggie. Um, we're going to take a deep breath because, Maggie, you just unloaded on us. <sighs> and a minute for a commercial break. And when we return, Maggie Knight will continue to enlighten us on her memoir, uh, Now Everyone Will Know, how after a fairy tale courtship in the 1980s, her young marriage to a perfect husband shattered and put her on a journey of self-discovery. We'll be right back now. Don't go nowhere. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. For many years, while employed as a Baltimore County 911 operator, Tamar Neal found herself as the only help available for the caller on the other end of the line. While people experienced life-changing emergencies until the first responders arrived, she received a national diploma in emergency medical dispatch. 
and became a certified relationship expert and multi-award winning author. Her articles have appeared in respected magazines and newspapers, and she's been interviewed by national and local media outlets. Visit TamarNeal.com to purchase her books, find out where she is appearing next, and take advantage of a valuable free gift. Tamar is also available for public speaking and life coaching. You can also receive signed copies of Tamar's books that are available only at the website. Visit T-A-M-A-R-A-Neal.com for more information or call directly at 888-503-1575. Tamar Neal's books are also available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most bookstores. That's TamarNeal.com or call 888-503-1575. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Tamar's Relationship Transformations. To reach Tamar Neal or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to relationships at tamarneal.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A neal.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back everyone. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Maggie Knight. Maggie, yes. take us take us to the conversation that you had with your husband after it was confirmed that he had AIDS. Okay. So I would like to talk about that and then talk about some I will talk about some very interesting things that happened afterwards and then bring everybody uh-huh. pr- to the present 25 years later. But here's the very uh, the answer to Tamara's very important question. I went into the hospital room John was in some days later. I did not yet know what my diagnosis was or wasn't. And he was lying there, and this was the man I had loved and trusted. And I said, you have AIDS. How did you get it? And he told me, he waited a minute. He was still pretty out of it, but was already on medication because he did have lesions on his brain, but they were caused by toxoplasmosis, which was an AIDS-related infection, not um, not cancer. I mean, that's not obvious, but that's what his situation was. And he said, he asked me if I, he said, if I, if I slept with our friend Chris, the, man, the guy we visited in the hospital, he was trying to, if you will, put it on me. And mm. I said, and I, and I had felt a chill. I thought, this is the man I married. This is, what is this? What, you know? And I said, I asked him again calmly, and I felt myself, now from a relationship perspective, I was having to shift from be, trusting and loving this man to a coldness stepping back, seeing that I had to do this by myself and I had to move on, whatever happened. And I, said, I asked him again, how did you get AIDS, John? And he said, after a couple, it seemed like an eternity, after a couple minutes, I slept with men in L.A. Oh, so he finally confessed. Now, I will say that in the book you learn that when we've had in our courtship, because of his fitness and his wonderful wardrobe, I'd asked him if he'd ever slept with men, and he said no. So okay. he had not so told, you me, learned he had not told me the truth. I'm sorry, you learned that your husband had full-blown, he had full-blown AIDS, sounds he like, did. and was gay almost at the same time. How did you manage to take it all in? I'm just sitting here and I can't even, I can't even take it. I'm still trying to take it all in. And, 
you know, how did you, I know you're going to save some of it for the book, but. I'm sorry, I can't say that again, the last part, please. I said, I know you want to save some of it for the book, but please tell me how. How did you manage to take it all in? Um, I think that, okay, so after that day, um, we, it's the book, that's where the book, I think, really gets interesting. To answer your question, I then was warned against telling anybody the truth of John's illness. This, again, this was 1990. He was given two weeks to live. That's how sick he Mm. was. But he lived for another, a little over eight months after that. And I, I just, I think I just knew I had to, I think anybody who's ever had a responsibility akin to having people depend on them. First of all, we, I tested negative. So we, we were not infected with AIDS. Because for those people, some people know this, other people don't know that AIDS is transmitted from mothers to children through the birth canal, um, in vitro or breastfeeding. So we did not, I did not have it. So I didn't pass it to my kids. This was the lucky break. Um, I was still breastfeeding my son. And so until the day that I got that all clear, I was worried, but I was breastfeeding and I, and they, and so uh, being healthy, I was given a, a stay of execution, if you will, and I said, ah. I, have to, I, we, I have to take care of this man who was once my lover. I'm going to care for him and raise these Wait a minute. Hold on one minute, Maggie. Yeah. Let me cut you off because I'm, I just want to round all this off because okay. i got to get to this other part. We, we don't have much time left. Okay. I want you to tell us where we can get the book and everything. But, okay. Maggie, you, you literally you became his, his care provider. And you were also taking care of two small children. So you were actually changing three sets of diapers, correct? Correct. Exactly. So if so, at some point you managed to forgive this 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 man, it sounds like you were taking care of him. So at some point you forgave him. Yes. Okay. I, to, to, bring, to tell you quickly, what the book relates is how my process some 20 years later of facing his memory after not talking about him for a long time because I didn't, couldn't equate, everyone equated his memory asking me what he died of with a story that I couldn't tell and a disease that I couldn't, whose stigma I could, the, 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 the stigma of AIDS I couldn't avoid for me or my kids. So some five years later, I started to tell the story in the form of writing articles and books, and that's what now everyone will know will be. And just my last, and then I also faced, I, I, I saw um, The Normal Heart on Broadway, the revival of it, and I found women through something called the Straight, Straight Spouse Network. I found women who found me who also were in what they call um, you know, uh, compromised uh, relationships between... We have a very fluid society now. So Uh people are married, closeted people get married, men and women, and now it's time you can come out. So there are a lot more people like me that I found. Most people stand under the radar who are like this. We're sort of a hidden group in society. So through meeting people who who had the same experience finally through seeing movies and books and reading about AIDS, getting in touch with it again. There were some 25-year retrospectives. I learned to forgive John, but how I really forgave him, and this is more, there's more on this, was to be able to talk about him again. That was my release, my catharsis. Right. To bring him back hey. into the world, and also the change in society, understanding how hard it was for him back then, and it was hard back then to be who you were if you were a homosexual. I think we've come a long way. We've come. We've done a 180. I hope on acceptance uh-huh. of people of difference. That's true. Now, 
everyone will, will know. Maggie wrote the book, Now Everyone Will Know. And what I want everyone to know is that this book is going to make a positive change, not only in the people who are dealing with this illness, but people who have suffered in silence from family secrets, domestic violence, and countless other circumstances. So, Maggie, this book is going to change the world. You are literally going to change the world. And I need you to tell our readers, our listeners, how they can purchase this book, how they can get in contact with you. And wait, one more thing before you tell them that. It, it has to go really quick. And okay. also tell anyone that um, would find their self. Well, just leave a thought for our listeners. What thought do you okay. want to leave? And where can they get your book, okay? You're okay, doing sure. such a okay. great job so with it. So to answer your question um, in an orderly and linear way, the book is available um, e- most, e- most easily uh, two ways. One, directly on Amazon.com. It's now everyone will know. And there's a subhead, The Perfect Husband, His Shattering Secret, My Rediscovered Life, and my na- last name is K-N-E-I-P. So please go there and buy the book. The second, getting in touch with me, my website, www.maggieknipe.com. You can send me a request for a book club visit. I, I visit many book clubs by Skype, and also I go where I can go, and I've also flown to book clubs. So you can talk to your local bookstore about getting the book as well. They know how to order my book. They, will know, how to, they, know, how, they know how to order books, Independence and Barnes & Noble. And advice for people, I would say there, there is a network called the Straight Spouse Network. It's online for people who are concerned about some, something about their spouses that may be kept in secret and they want to sort of understand how to deal with it. There's very, very wonderful people involved with that. There's also something called the, the Research Foundation to Cure AIDS in New York here, and I work with them and talk with them. A man named Kambi Shekhtar is a researcher. Many people are researching a cure for AIDS so that we won't have to worry about it. And I think another thing for people to know is that I know that I relied on very strong friendships and family members. Who, without my family, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, my parents, I, you need strong family if you have them, and also sometimes if you can help you clergy. Um, but you need to talk to somebody when you have a situation like this or challenging in the way of secrets. Well, Maggie, I want to thank you for finding the courage to break your silence and share such a heartfelt story with our listeners. I am sure many of our listeners have been transformed in more than one way of thinking. Please tell our listeners you've already told them, but um, we have about two seconds. I guess they can go to MaggieKnight.com, correct? Correct, and also Amazon. To learn more. Two places and Amazon. information about me and the book is for sale. You can go from my website to Amazon to buy the book. Okay, so we're out of time. Thank you for uh, joining us on tomorrow's Relationship Transformations. I'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Tomorrow's Relationship Transformations. Please join host Tamar Neal again next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll see you here again next week.